0: Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I have an incredibly important discussion with Dr. Mark Horowitz, who is an MD, has a PhD in psychoneurobiology, and is a clinical research and trainee psychiatrist fellow at University College London. Mark tells his story from both sides of the desk being a clinician and being a patient. He explains despite his extensive training, he was told antidepressants, which he'd been on since he was a medical student, were safe and easy to come off, which was completely contrary to his experience personally and those of his patients. He found that experts in his field actually had little understanding on the withdrawal effects of psychiatric drugs, saying to stop drugs over two to four weeks and that there would only be mild symptoms. Instead, the place where he found the most useful advice, which through research has been shown to be the correct advice, was from online peer support websites of those who had survived coming off antidepressants. We talk about this in depth and Mark explains exactly how to come off psychiatric drugs in the proper way. We provide a link to his protocol which is on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website in these show notes. We also touch on the dangers of esketamine. Let's begin. Life can be hard and it's easy to feel stressed, anxious and out of control. What if there was a way to take back control? What if there was a practical way to detox your brain? This is now possible with NeuroCycle, the first ever scientifically tested brain detox app shown to help reduce anxiety and depression by up to 81%. Users are guided through a variation of audio and video, brain exercises and mind management lessons every day. I'm excited to share some of the latest features in the app, including guides for children and parents, detailed feedback and recommendations, written guides through days 22 through 63 of the NeuroCycle and an easy way to track your progress. There are over 500,000 NeuroCycle users worldwide and the app has helped change thousands of lives, including people trying to find purpose in life, overcoming fear, better sleep, improved relationships, managing intrusive thoughts, depression and anxiety and so much more. NeuroCycle is for everybody, no matter who you are, what you've been through, what you do, you have an incredible mind and brain that is always on and needs to be managed so that you can live your best both mentally and physically. This app is designed for individuals, couples, families, businesses or corporations, for everyone, everywhere. Join us by committing just a few minutes a day and see how your life is transformed. In just 63 days, you will have begun rewiring your brain for a happier and healthier life. Download the NeuroCycle app today and start changing your life one thought at a time. Just look for NeuroCycle on the iTunes App Store or Google Play or visit NeuroCycle.app. The link and more information will be in the show notes. Mark, it's so great to have you back in the studio again. Thank you so much. It is amazing to listen to your expertise and so important. You, you come from such a highly professional background of being an MD, doing psychiatry as well as psychopharmacology and a PhD in psychopharmacology. And that for me is so important to outline for my listeners. They've heard your bio. I'm saying it again. I'm going to ask you to explain it again because what you're about to share with us about your own experience, as well as your clinical and your research experience on the dangers of psychiatric withdrawal not being done properly and just having an informed understanding of what a psychiatric drug does to us is so vitally important. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise today.
1: Thank, thank you for having me on the the show, Carolyn. So I guess I'll maybe I'll outline my training and how I came to this topic and and what I've what I've learned about it over the last few years. So I'm originally from Australia; it's the accent, but now I'm working in London. I trained as a doctor there. I started psychiatry training. Um, I went to London to do a master's in neuroscience and then a PhD in psychiatry and neuroscience. And my PhD was focused on the neurobiology of depression and the way that antidepressants affect the brain. And after that, I went back to Australia to do a bit bit more of my psychiatry training. And now I'm working in London as a clinical research fellow in the National Health Service in psychiatry. And I'm also an honorary clinical research fellow at University College London, one of the universities in the city here. I paused my psychiatry training while I've done this research because I'm really trying to work out how safe and effective these drugs are, how, how it is, what's the best way to stop them before I go back into practice. And now my interests in psychiatry have changed drastically based on my own experience. So probably like a lot of people, I went into psychiatry to fix myself and fix my family. Of probably classic older, oldest uh, son stuff. I, in fact, had started using antidepressant when I was 21. I was in third year medical school then. I would describe myself as a neurotic Woody Allen type of character. I didn't enjoy the kind of regimented nature of medical school. And so I was a miserable camper at, at the age of 21. And I went to see a, a doctor, a GP who prescribed me an antidepressant after a few minutes of conversation and I took that antidepressant for really the next 20 years and I'm still in the process of coming off it now in my what I like to call my very late 30s but what is in fact my 40s. The way that I really became aware of the issue of withdrawal is about seven years ago eight years ago, more like, in London, I was writing up my PhD. I did my PhD on how do antidepressants work and what is the biology of depression. For obvious reasons, I was interested in trying to understand more about myself and my patients and friends and family. When I was writing up my PhD, I came across a paper talking about withdrawal symptoms from antidepressants. And that was quite a shocking moment for me because I'd never heard about that before in my medical training or in my psychiatry training or in my PhD. And it was startling to me because I'd always associated withdrawal symptoms with drugs like Valium and other benzodiazepines or OxyContin and other opioids. And to me, withdrawal effects meant that you became used to the drug. Tolerance is the sort of flip side of withdrawal. You become used to the drug and that's why when you take the drug away, you experience withdrawal effects. And in general, drugs that were not very healthy to take in the long term, like benzodiazepines or opioids. And that made me think about stopping the medication, the antidepressant. And being a kind of dutiful and nerdy doctor, I went to read all of the academic literature about stopping antidepressants. And at that point, I was doing my PhD at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, which while I was there... Past Harvard to be the most cited institution researching psychiatry in the world. So I was working with the best of the best. And a lot of the papers I read were written by my professors or their colleagues. And what those papers said was that you can stop antidepressants over about four weeks. There are discontinuation symptoms that are generally brief and mild. And they often said it went for a week or two. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But being a, I guess being a millennial, even a geriatric millennial, I was used to searching things on Google. So I thought that I would also (laughs) check out what do the, what do the people say? And I found a very different story there. They said that uh, many people, it was actually thousands of people, I was kind of, I was kind of shocked by how many people were on these peer support websites, websites like Surviving Antidepressants and and, uh, other groups. I was sort of shocked at how many people were coming off these medications, antidepressants, and how much trouble they were having. And they were saying that they were getting terrible withdrawal symptoms, that it was taking them months or years to come off. I sort of clocked that and I thought, well, I'm not going to end up like those people. Maybe they're a bit neurotic, maybe these are these are other problems. I'll sort of hedge my bets and I'll split I'll split the difference. I'll go somewhere between what my professors are saying four weeks. And the months and years that these people are saying online and I ended up coming off my antidepressant, which at that point was escitalopram or Lexapro, I think very commonly used mm-hmm. in the US, Australia. I essentially halved my dose every month. I went down over four months and I entered a, a realm of experience that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I had great trouble sleeping. I started having panic attacks. I would wake up in the morning feeling like I was being chased by a wild animal, sweating, heart racing, and although I'm not the most athletic fellow around, I took up running 10 kilometers a day, even even to the point that my wow. my toes were bleeding, just to get a little bit of reprieve from the panic that was essentially with me all day. Wow. And I'd running for an hour i would get a a little a little reprieve from the panic that would then return to settle a bit in the evening in other words i was sort of in a state of panic for weeks and weeks and weeks and i at different points in that process i started thinking i'm not sure if if this sort of life is actually worth continuing because it was just so terrifying It wasn't at all anything like I'd been at the age of 21. At 21, I'd been miserable, I'd been pessimistic, I'd been tired, I didn't enjoy university, but I'd never had trouble sleeping, these sort of panic attacks. So I I didn't, it wasn't even for a second uh, a thought in my mind, is this a return of my condition? You know, it was very clear to me these were new symptoms, (laughs) very unfamiliar. I also had physical symptoms, I had dizziness, I had a sense of sort of a very hard to put into words disorientation, a feeling that things were not mm-hmm. quite real. What I've since learnt is called derealization, sort of fogginess, I had trouble concentrating, and so I, I, I sort of understood that these were withdrawal symptoms. These were not symptoms coming back from a, from a, from my condition, but something new caused by stopping the drug. It was still very disorientating, and I ended up actually moving back from. London to my family's house in Sydney in my in my early 30s because it it was just so knocked me off my perch mm-hmm. and I ended up going back on the medication i think even to a higher dose which after a few weeks did settle things down and so for after that i was i was essentially too frightened to come off the medication again soon after that because of that experience again i guess i then Years later, I came off, I tried to come off again. So I'm now in the process of coming off. It's been it's been now quite a while. Essentially, I decided on the second attempt to come off that I would pay much more attention to what people online were saying, because I had figured out that even coming off over four months was much too quick for me. It seemed to be much too quick for these tens of thousands of other people I found online. And I thought, well, I better take, since what I've learned from my professors is not at all helpful, that four weeks is a ridiculously short period of time. Mm. also concluded it wasn't just me. You know, it wasn't just me having an idiosyncratic reaction to these drugs. It was clearly a widespread phenomenon. And so I went back to these websites. I thought, you know, this is pretty unusual that I have got a PhD in psychopharmacology. I've studied at the top institute in the world. I'm medically trained. I'm in psychiatry training. And yes, I'm getting the best advice From people on online websites, from retired engineers, from housewives, from a variety of different people. These people were able to give me better advice than the professors at the top of my field. I thought that was a very strange circumstance.
0: Take action today for a healthier tomorrow with Everly Well. Their at-home lab tests and vitamin supplements can help you get the knowledge and support you need, so you can become a healthier you. Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers you need, like the Women's Health Test or Food Sensitivity Test. Everly Well also has high-quality vitamins and supplements to support your overall health. Choose from a variety of options, including vitamin D, 3 and omega, fish oil. Here's how it works. Everly well ships products straight to you with everything needed in one package. To take your at-home lab test, simply collect your sample and use the included prepaid shipping label to mail your test back to a certified lab. Your physician-reviewed results get sent to your phone or device in just days. And you can share the results with your primary care physician to help guide next steps. If you ordered vitamins and supplements, you can start adding them to your daily routine right away. I recently did their thyroid test and loved the ease of the process, the easy to understand results and the fascinating insights I gained into my health. And for listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash drleaf. That's everlywell.com slash drleaf for 20% off your next at-home lab test, everlywell.com slash drleaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. That is is something, you know, every time I hear you say that, and I hear so many people say this in similar kinds of backgrounds to what you are, it's horrific that doctors are, and I mean, I'm not surprised, I've trained physicians myself, and this is kind of almost sometimes uh, not an argument, but it's like a, how can you say that kind of situation? You know, what is it? And I just you just have to go look at the research. Have you looked at the research? And then you also say about the survivor side. I actually I was doing some research. Apparently, there's over a million survivor sites of people that, so, it, I mean, that's, that says something. There's over a million people on survivor sites, and it's, I'm sure it's increased since then. That's telling us something. So I just wanted to emphasize what you're saying there, that people, they need to hear what you're actually saying. It's the doctors are not telling them, it's the survivors.
1: Yes, yes. I don't think it's because the doctors, you know, are trying to withhold information or to Not trial. at all any way malicious. Not I at think, all. Yeah, And I guess I know that because I've been on their side of the desk. I think the issue is they're just very poorly informed. I, exactly. I, I would say before I went through this experience, I had been taught what all my colleagues have been taught. You know, I, would have, I would have accepted what I had read, that these discontinuation symptoms were mild and brief. You could come off in four weeks and I would have given the same advice to my patients because you know, I'm in in, in, uh, in medicine, you know, we're very dependent on learning from experts. You can't do all this research by yourself. And so I was being told that by experts. I would have told that to patients. You know, I have, of course, like all my colleagues, I've got a desire to help my patients. I I, I would have just been ignorant. And I realize in the past I have been ignorant. I have given bad advice to patients about stopping their drugs. And I would never have come across this alternative source of knowledge and wisdom and practical advice had i not been forced to from my own experience so i although i'm very frustrated by my colleagues often reluctance to listen to new information i understand it because they're they're very used to receiving information in a very hierarchical manner yeah from lecturers from readers from professors and not from patients i guess it's very awkward it's unusual for them to be listening to patients I think there is some there are some cracks in that and there are there are people who are who are learning from that, but I guess it's very unusual for a lot of physicians. It would have been unusual for me, but I I was I had I was forced to do it and I'm and I'm very glad for that.
0: I'm so pleased you did, Mark, and that you're sharing your wisdom because a lot of people are hearing what you're saying. And you know, I quote you all the time in the training that I do you and Joanna and Sam, Tamimi and Robert Whittaker. I mean there's so many there's such an excellent source of. of- Research to guide people. And I find my experience with physicians when you sort of point this out to them, they're actually really grateful to say, you know, there's another alternative point of view. So people are listening, uh, starting to listen and see what you're saying, which is is so important.
1: Yes, yes. So one thing I think is every psychiatrist and GP, I think, is beginning to appreciate, if they haven't already, that there is really very little guidance on how to stop these drugs safely. There's a huge amount of research on how to start the drugs, when to start the drugs, add the drugs, you know, that's because of the commercial realities that most research is done by drug companies. It's in drug companies' interest to have studies on starting drugs, it's not really in their interest to have studies on stopping drugs. And I think people are becoming more aware that we've really been focusing on half of the practice of psychopharmacology, which is starting the drugs. And Mm -hmm. so I think people are aware there's very little guidance on how to stop the drugs. And that makes it a little bit more open-minded, I hope, to to learning more about this. And in in, in when there is not research about, the next best thing is to learn from people's experience. So Absolutely. there is something happening, and then learning from people's experience is the next best. So I, I was back on these websites to, to try to work out how to come off the drugs myself. I decided this time to take them at their word and to come off slowly over months and years. And I wrote, and while I was doing it, Number one, there had a big effect on me personally. So as I was coming off these drugs, I experienced a reduction in symptoms that I'd had for many years, which had caused me great trouble in my life, which were impaired concentration, impaired memory, and daytime tiredness, which I had had along the way, diagnosed as mm-hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome and then narcolepsy. And as I started coming off the medications I was on at that point of time, all those symptoms started improving, which wow. was, which is really, you know, joyful for me it made me feel like i might be able to get my my mind back because at that point i was very worried about my inability to to think straight. i've been told it was all sorts of other illnesses but i i'm now uh, much more convinced that it was adverse effects from the drugs that i was on so that was a very joyful for me yeah tinged with a whole, huge amount of regret that i'd been on these medications for so many years that caused me so many problems and the second thing i did in the in the in the academic realm was to write a paper about what I'd learned on these websites which I ended up publishing in the Lancet Psychiatry that outlined how to come off these drugs that I can talk about a bit more later on.
0: Yes please and we'll put the link to that paper in in this and I know is that the one that's on that that you got from the other uh, guidelines in the Royal College of Psychiatry is that where that comes from and if you could talk about that as well.
1: Yes exactly so the the guidelines that are now in in England, from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and actually also the NICE guidelines are based in part on the paper that I wrote then. So, Fantastic! Yes, congratulations.
0: So I, I mean, that's quite an impact. Yes,
1: yes. I think there was. I had some, I guess, inter, some allies there within the within the Royal College which made it happen. So, I guess I should I should talk to that. So then, so since that period of time, which is now four years ago, all of my research has been focused on how to safely stop psychiatric drugs. Okay. And maybe maybe I'll talk in broad yes. what I've learned, what it might mean for patients, and and how it's led to guideline change in England, but basically almost nowhere else, um, which is in itself interesting.
0: It is very interesting. And, and this is why I'm very glad we're going to transition over to, or pivot over to talking in, about that. So people that are listening, because we this podcast reaches globally, but it's, we have a huge American audience, and people are constantly asking me, where do I even start? How do I do this? Where are the guidelines? You know, and this is why now they've got this podcast. They can reach out and see. They can go to the, see the guidelines on the Royal College of Psychiatrists and they'll have the paper and they'll have, you know, so the, there's going to be a resource now to help people.
1: Yes. Okay, exactly. And, and that's what people, we know, you know, I get endless emails from people who are asking for just what you've just outlined? You know, they decide that the drugs are causing them more harm than goods. They've been on them for longer than they, than they think they needed to be. Either their lives are sorted out, or they prefer to, to try to find other ways of managing their, uh, their emotions and thoughts. And they want to know how do I get off these drugs? And they're often told by their doctors, "Well, you can just come off in four weeks, and there's no major issues." And exactly as I was told, and and I guess. So I'd like to outline what what we know. So I'm normally I do this with slides. So I, I hope I can I can paint a picture with with words that'll will be conveyed to people. So maybe I'll just talk about why does withdrawal effects happen? What are they, and and what we know about how to avoid them?
0: Mark, could I sorry to interrupt you? Are we going to talk specifically initially about antidepressants, or are you going to touch on the other psychotropics, or the other psychiatric so, drugs? I should say.
1: So I can talk about. Probably, so they, they they all have very similar themes to them. I'll okay. talk mostly about antidepressants because okay. they're the most used drugs. They're the ones I get questions about the most. Okay. But I'll relate it to antipsychotics and other drugs along the way so that people can hear the whole thing. Essentially, so what sets up trouble stopping is that all psychiatric drugs cause changes in the brain. So our brain is a homeostatic system. So homeostasis means we like to keep things in balance. So when it's too hot outside, our body will try to cool us down. When it's too cold outside, our body will try to heat us up. It, it's That's one of the central mechanisms for the body. If we take a medication that increases a certain hormone in the brain or neurotransmitter like serotonin, our brain will respond by diminishing serotonin receptors, in other words, diminishing the signal. Something like being in a loud concert, your eardrum will become tighter so that the sounds are are muted so you you don't get too much noise. The brain does that to all sorts of chemical signals. So for antidepressants, it probably involves a reduction in serotonin receptors because there's high levels of serotonin. Similar things happen for all other psychiatric drugs. So for example, if you're taking an antipsychotic, which blocks dopamine, then the brain will do the opposite. It'll increase the sensitivity to dopamine, so that that signal comes back sort of to, to 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 normal, and that involves making dopamine receptors more sensitive. And that applies to any drug that's changing the biology of the brain. So if a drug increases histamine, it'll reduce the sensitivity to histamine. This applies to. Mood stabilisers, antidepressants, benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, each with their particular receptor or neurotransmitter that's affected, but the brain is a plastic organ and it'll adapt to these drugs. Now, when you're taking the drug, normally there's an equilibrium form. The brain will become more or less sensitive and that'll, be, that'll match the levels that are supplied by the drug and so things tend to stay in, in equilibrium most of the time. Now, when you stop the drug, things change. So, when you stop the drug, the drug will be supplying less of whatever neurochemical it's supplying. The brain is used to more of it. The difference between what the brain expects and what the drug is supplying will cause withdrawal effects. And so, the the worst way to stop a psychiatric drug, the way that's guaranteed to give you the most trouble is to throw it in the bin, is to stop it abruptly. Your brain expects this much and you have gone, the drug is supplying about that much, you've gone now to zero, that difference is going to be very large. Yeah. I describe that sometimes like jumping off the top of a building. Your brain is used to 10 storeys of the chemical that your drug is supplying. You've gone down to ground floor, and in jumping that far, you can do yourself considerable mischief.
0: That's a good way of uh, explaining it. Mm-hmm.
1: So then the opposite of that, stopping, that's stopping abruptly, is going down step-by-step, down all the stories. So it takes a lot longer, but you're walking down the stairs, and that is what tapering is. It means you're making smaller reductions than you were when you did it in one go, and that will cause some difference between what the brain expects and what you're supplying it, but the brain will get used to it each time, and if you do it slowly enough, then the difference between what the brain expects and what the drug is supplying will be small enough that it won't cause terrible trouble, I would say, like banging your knees going downstairs versus what happens if you jump from the 10th story to the bottom. And so, so the main principle is if you reduce your drug gradually, you will spread out the withdrawal effects from all in one go to smaller amounts over time. And most people can find a rate of reduction that's tolerable for them, that fits into their lives, whatever they are. Some people can tolerate it a bit quicker. Some people can tolerate a bit a bit slower, and most people can find some rate that they can tolerate in their lives. And what is probably happening in that process is whatever that initial change, a reduction in sensitivity to serotonin for antidepressants is probably slowly reversing. You might say the brain's returning to its factory settings before the drug was, was put in, There's a lot of debate about will it ever get back exactly to factory settings, but it'll move towards that. In other words, the changes caused by being on the drug will slowly reverse, and if you do it slowly enough, it'll have time for the brain to get used to lower levels.
0: Mark, well, can I quickly ask a question here? So can you briefly, before you go into the detail, which is amazing, is just quickly explain that staying on the antidepressant or the benzodiazepine or the antipsychotic or even a stimulant like Adderall, Stratera or something, Ritalin, staying on it doesn't necessarily keep your brain, there's a homeostasis, but there is also another thing that happens, you know, it's, it's not a long term, it doesn't mean that your brain stays healthy. These things do have long-term effects that are negative. So they're more, they should be more used in an acute sense than a chronic sense, a chronic use. Could you talk just a little bit about, because some people may be thinking, oh, well, then let me stay on to keep homeostasis. But I think we need to be informed as to if you stay on, yes, there's a level of homeostasis, but there's a bunch of other stuff going on that will impact. And you've already described your own experience, the sleep, the, you know, the fogginess, which really worried you and the clarity of thought and so on. You could
1: sure. a to no, that. It's a very good point. So I guess when, I, when I'm talking about homeostasis, I'm comparing it to what happens when you stop. But exactly as you say, these drugs, from research that we have, tend to have you know, adverse effects on the brain. So we don't know the exact mechanisms. We know, for example, for antipsychotics, there seems to be shrinkage on the brain that you can see on brain scans. I was actually recently shown a paper by my professor, that shows that antidepressants can also cause more subtle reductions in in size of the brain. There's been there's been less research on other psychiatric drugs, but we know that that you know altering the the chemical balance of the brain can have negative effects. So that's very clear when we think about recreational drugs or when we think about someone using ecstasy or amphetamines long-term, we implicitly understand that those sort of things are not good for the brain. And we see that in people's behaviour. They're not, they become cognitively impaired. They have sleep disruption. They can often develop mood problems. You know, it's a longer conversation, but but we should be more aware that psychiatric drugs have strong similarities to recreational drugs. They, They affect similar receptors We know that benzodiazepines essentially have almost identical properties to alcohol. They're probably a bit less toxic to the liver than alcohol is, but they affect GABA receptors. There are similarities between antidepressants and drugs like MDMA and ecstasy. They both affect the serotonin transporter. MDMA and ecstasy are probably stronger and have larger effects on serotonin, but there are similarities. Through that lens, if we if we sort of ignore some of them come in packets with drug company lettering on the front, and some come in in, in, um, in powder form in little packets from dealers. If we just look at the pharmacology, which is what I'm interested in, there are there are great similarities between between recreational drugs and psychiatric medications. That's and a very a good them,
0: point. Yes.
1: And a lot of the effects of recreational drugs we can see in patients who are on psychiatric drugs long-term. So, for example, I I highlighted a few that happened to me, but it's on the the package insert of many of these drugs. If you open up a packet of an antidepressant or benzodiazepine and pull out the leaflet that's written by the drug company and approved by the FDA or the equivalent in your country, it will list many of the symptoms that I mentioned that I had. Daytime tiredness, trouble sleeping, insomnia, memory and concentration impairments, weight gain disrupted dreams, all sorts of of things. You know, we know that these drugs affect every organ in the body. You know, the reason why people have sexual side effects is probably because these drugs affect the hormonal system of the brain um, and the body. So uh, we know that these drugs will affect uh, every aspect of human biology. There's no, they, they are not targeted where they only act on certain receptors in the brain. No drug is that clever. They work on everything throughout the entire body. And that's why people can have such a wide variety of symptoms. I often get people in my clinic, because I run a clinic that helps people to stop their psychiatric drugs, simply to pull out that piece of paper from inside their drug packet and to tick off which symptoms they have. Because many people have been told, don't read it. It's written by the lawyers. You know, you not a big deal. It is written by the lawyers. It's written for a reason, because they've been sued for those symptoms. Exactly. So then they're not trumping it up, you know. It's it's often I think it's often an underestimate of the adverse effects, yeah. Because taken from short-term studies, you know, from six-week, twelve-week studies, people are on these drugs for decades. The cumulative effects can be can be uh, worse. We know that there are studies mm-hmm. that connect use of antidepressants and benzodiazepines long-term to risk of Alzheimer's. For benzodiazepines, there's a clear link to increased risk of fractures, falls. There's even suggestive evidence that increases risk of infections and cancer. So there are all sorts of risks to, to long-term treatment, and and so that's that's certainly one of the reasons why people should be always evaluating what the balance of risks and harms are from being on these medications. The so,
0: informed consent.
1: Yes, exactly. So I think yeah. you know there's a lot of time spent by doctors talking about the benefits, much less time talking about the harms, and I I think that's exactly that needs to be rebalanced, and then. Before I go into talking about how to stop these drugs safely, another thing I hear from patients a lot is, I know I need these drugs because when I stop them, I feel worse. A lot of people will say that. Oh, yeah, I've
0: heard that comment many times. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, I thought I didn't need them anymore because I felt better, but then I stopped them and that really gave me, you know, a wake up call that I need these drugs. And I think for a lot of people, they're mistaking withdrawal symptoms from stopping the drugs for a return of their condition. And that's probably worth just emphasising for a minute because it's just so common. One, we know withdrawal symptoms tend to come on in a few days after stopping, that relapse tends to occur later on. But I also hear more and more from patients that even withdrawal symptoms can be delayed by weeks. We don't exactly understand why that is, but people have very distinctive withdrawal symptoms like electric shocks and trouble sleeping and anxiety that seems to be delayed for weeks after stopping. So I think we should have a high index of suspicion for withdrawal effects. The second way to distinguish after timing whether something is withdrawal effects or a return of an underlying condition is the symptoms. So I haven't talked a lot about them, but withdrawal symptoms from antidepressants, for example, can include all of the psychological symptoms in anxiety and depression, low mood, trouble sleeping, anxiety, panic attacks, obsessive thoughts, and in addition, they can also cause physical symptoms, things like dizziness, lightheadedness, headache, that feeling that I mentioned, derealization that things are not real or they're dreamlike. It's a very common symptom I hear from my patients. Not being able to think straight. I've heard of very evocative descriptions like having cotton wool in your head, which mm. sounds bizarre if you haven't had it, but to me I know that intimately what that feels like, just not being able to focus, feeling that things are very foggy, is a very typical withdrawal symptom. Then there are quite distinctive sensory symptoms like electric shocks people have in their heads, a little feeling sometimes that their head is being switched off, or they get little zaps as they move their eyes. All of these sort of symptoms, I've just mentioned the physical symptoms, are not present in anxiety and depression, and therefore you know mark withdrawal symptoms out as being from stopping the drug or reducing the drug and not from a return of their underlying condition. And along with that, if you went on a medication because you felt low and you had trouble sleeping, and now, years later, when you come off the drug, you have anxiety, you have panic attacks, completely different symptoms, psychological symptoms, yes, Mm -hmm. but different from what you had when you first went on, then it's much more likely that you're having withdrawal symptoms Mm -hmm. rather than coincidentally developed new onset of an anxiety disorder at just the moment when you've reduced your medication. Mm -hmm. In other words, we should have a high index of suspicion for withdrawal effects and not for a new onset of a mental health condition and then the last thing that gives you a clue that the withdrawal effects are not a relapse is often starting the medication again especially soon after you've stopped it can clear up the symptoms in just a a few days or a couple of
0: weeks. That's really key isn't it?
1: Which can kind of—it's a bit retrospective because by that point you're already back on the drugs, but that can give you a little clue if they've cleared up fairly quickly that that's a sign that they were withdrawal the symptoms and not relapse. So, so after saying that, I would say to many patients who think that being worse when they come off their medications it's worth reconsidering did you have dizziness did you have headaches were the symptoms different? do they go away very quickly after going back on the medication could it have been withdrawal symptoms and very very often when i see patients that's what will come out we'll go through those questions and i'll say actually I did have a headache i did feel dizzy it did happen two days after i went back i went off the drugs It did clear up within three days and then we start to think probably it was withdrawal symptoms. Mm. And the solution is not to be stuck on the drug forever, but to come off it more slowly, just as I've outlined, I think down from that tall building rather than jumping.
0: So those are very key things, Mark, that they can, these very specific questions that you can ask yourself or someone you can ask, you know, you can work through this with a a medical professional who knows how to withdraw or who has some insight into this. But you're in, in the paper you talk about these as well and then also in the Royal College of Psychiatry that link there that they can have a look at you do it's it's, it's clearly laid out isn't it that you've got what what to look for for the, which are most probably withdrawal symptoms versus a relapse and the other thing that people I wanted to ask you about this very quickly is um, a lot of people will say to me that they came off and suddenly the problem that they went on for in the first place they realize they never addressed that you know, so they, then it's almost, it is a sign that, okay, this didn't really fix anything. This just suppressed, added more problems to my life. And I haven't even addressed the initial issue, which that's something that I don't know if you find your patients saying quite a lot of that sort of thing to you as well.
1: It's yes, absolutely, so I, I, that's a very, it's a very good point when problems do come back. I think I see two categories of people. One, I see people who were put on medication when they were teenagers or in their early twenties, they had felt overwhelmed with life either they were you know maybe a young parents maybe their families were not as stable as as they could have been they just started working and they felt overwhelmed you know as as people in their teens and 20s do and they started having panic attacks or they've become depressed or anxious and they experienced the medication as a relief when they when they were on it you know i think that one of the main things that these drugs do is they dial down the volume of emotions mm-hmm. and they, numbing is a very common effect of all psychiatric drugs, you know particularly antidepressants but lots of other ones as well and that can be a relief for people who are in the middle of complete turmoil mm-hmm. you know but the numbing effects can you know obviously are not targeted to negative emotions they're targeted they can, they're not targeted they okay. they're all emotions. they're positive and they're negative negative. and so down the track people, come to see me because they feel numbed they they don't they're not they don't feel connected to their partner they don't feel connected to life the numbing is having a negative effect and for some of those people who i see in their 30s and 40s and 50s or later they have solved those issues that had first affected them they are no longer overwhelmed teenagers people in their 20s they have stable families their jobs are stable they're no longer you know they developed some sort of coping technique they found a the right job fit the right friend fit the right partner Mm -hmm. and so the issues are really historical and they're just on the drugs often because when they stop them they get withdrawal symptoms
0: okay and then they've they've been told it's another label sorry interrupted you
1: there exactly so so they whatever label was first applied to them they've outgrown it you know whatever generalized anxiety disorder major depressive disorder they sorted their lives out and that's no longer relevant to them they've they're, they're functioning fairly well
0: Being healthy is about way more than fitting a certain clothes size or looking a certain way. I personally want to be able to keep up with my kids, have more energy to do the things I love and improve my mental and physical health so that I can live my best life as I get older. Whatever your reason is for wanting to make a change, Noom is ready to help. Their psychology-based approach empowers you with the knowledge and support to build lasting results. I find the apps quick, daily lessons super helpful, and have learned so much about the relationship between what I eat and my health. I also think it's great that you get to choose your level of support, from 5-minute daily check-ins to personal coaching. Whatever your health goals are, Noom's flexible, non-restrictive program focuses on progress instead of perfection. Indeed, they know progress isn't a straight line, and off days are totally okay. Noom will help you get back on track no matter what happens. Plus, their program is grounded in science. The team at Noom have published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles that inform users, practitioners, scientists, and the public about their methods and effectiveness. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash drleaf. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash D-R-L-E-A-F to sign up for your trial today and check out Noom's first ever book, The Noom Mindset. A deep dive into the psychology of behaviour change, available for pre-order wherever books are sold. The link and details will be in the show notes. But I know in the States what happens is when, that in that situation, and I know it's happening in the UK and South Africa and Australia, is they then get you know multiple labels. You speak quite a bit about that, polypharmacy. You know, so you think you're okay and you withdraw and then you get another label, you get another drug and you land up with multiple labels and multiple drugs and it doesn't solve the problem. And actually you... You're on the side of healing, but kind of, we, we're always working at our sort of stuff. I mean, there's never a day that we don't, there's always something new to work on, but you get to a point where you can actually deal with stuff. It's my. I talk a lot about mind management on this, which is a huge part of my work. And that's just, you know, we're not going to have total peace, but we can learn how to, we can't change our story, but we can learn how to change how it plays out into the future and that kind of acceptance. You know, and that, that kind of is almost stolen from you if you don't have a chance to go through that pain and process and find the source and. You're not even going to get the answers when you find the source, because you're not going to find out why someone hurt you or raped you or whatever. That's, you know, those are answers you may never have, but there's a level of peace. Okay. I'm showing up like this because of, which the drugs are not going to do. They're not going to fix that.
1: Yes. So that's exactly the second group of people that I see, which is exactly what you said. The The issues underlying emerge again and the relationship troubles and the trauma history and all the things come out. And exactly as you've said, They've been numbed for many years. They haven't dealt with these issues. It's been locked in there. I've heard people say it's like an arrest development because exactly no. all those things, all these all these aspects of human resilience. You know, you you experience trauma. It completely throws you off. You find ways of exactly reframing it. You find a more stable relationship or, or situation that allows you to to rethink things, to develop uh, different you know coping techniques. I think I, I, I'm very convinced that yes, drugs can interrupt that process because for that process, you need to feel your emotions and you need to think different thoughts. And if the medications are numbing the emotions and also making a bit foggy in your thinking, both of those things are going to impair the ability for natural healing. I think some people can still do it on the drugs, but but it is my impression that that does it does short circuit that process. It does stop that process from happening. You know, I think probably more your area than mine, but I think a lot of what happens in therapy is people confronting very unpleasant emotions, shame, embarrassment, horror, despair, and getting used to them, reframing them. And if you can't, if you don't have those emotions to start with, you can't, you can't approach them. So you can't, I, I, refra- I,
0: yeah, you can't, re- you, you've got to deconstruct and reconstruct in order to be able to get some level of acceptance and move forward. And you know, with the work that I've been doing it's, I've it's from early days in the 80s when I was training, when they told us that the brain couldn't change to the to, to the mid-90s when – and I did some of the first work in my field in neuroplasticity. So, in, in showing, so I had an advantage in terms of the neuroscience, neuroplasticity, but from a mind-brain-body holistic perspective. So that was how I ran my career and my practice and my research. But I was watching what you were t- describing. I watched this happen. I watched patients come in. Fortunately, I found some doctors in South Africa that would help my patients because I'm not. That's, I'm not a medical doctor, so I needed to work with a medical doctor to help them with withdrawal. But now we're at the stage now. You, you commented. I've heard you say this a few times on interviews and things about. And you mentioned it in the beginning that you've been challenged by. I think you said you were challenged by various doctors saying, "Hey, that's not a random controlled trial." But if you have hundreds and thousands, millions of patients globally telling the very much the same story of descriptions of withdrawal symptoms and all these things we've been discussing you know random controlled trials are going to you know that's just going to we need those obviously i'm not saying i mean i do them myself but we've we've got to listen to the evidence that's out there and apply that evidence and not just say oh that doesn't count it's anecdotal you know that's you can't say a million people's same stories are anecdotal anymore
1: well, i think it's i think it's a gross example of denial i mean of course Doctors are very. It's it's a little bit. Of course, in in evidence, a randomised controlled trial is more reliable than an anecdote. But in 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 areas where there's not great trials, you you go down to the next level of of, of evidence. Doctors are very happy to do that in lots of aspects of what they've they practice. They say, it "Work for me." So they're being they're being very. It's a very defensive argument to say, "Well, in yeah. this case." Hundreds of thousands of people, we ignore it. That's a completely ridiculous argument. We've got to wait for the trials to prove it's true. You know, you don't need to prove that a parachute works. Once you have half a million people on websites and they can't get off these drugs, anyone who's saying we need to wait for randomized control trials to prove it is is being... Is in deceptive. denial. And, how, and
0: how, how hard would it be to take all those cases, de-identify and do a statistical history? There's different ways of analyzing that kind of data and you would have a full-on scientific study. You know, that's something... Hey, Mark, why aren't you doing that? I'm going to say to you, that's, there's, a, there's a study that can be done that, that can show that this is, this is valid data. Anyway, I'm d- diversifying here, but it's, it, you know, it's, it, frust- it is frustrating for the, for the people that are on those sites and who've had and the experiences.
1: Should, should, yes, absolutely. I should say, and, and that, that argument is actually even more ridiculous because actually there are randomized controlled trials showing withdrawal effects are very common. You know, exactly. trials show that withdrawal effects occur in about half of the people. There are exactly. surveys. And not randomized controlled trials, which show that uh, the symptoms can be severe in a quarter of patients. So there is starting to be more and more evidence. People are, up, people are picking up this topic. There are trials happening around the world on how to stop these drugs safely. You know, a lot Thank of it based on the work that we, we did. So you know, it will start to happen. And I think the people that are that are now saying, "Oh, this this is we don't have evidence for," will start to look sillier and sillier.
0: Absolutely, especially in the light of the recent paper that Junja Anna Moncrief brought out, showing that the. You know, the myth of the serotonin imbalance, and of 21 million papers, it's been the most cited, and up in the late, late 300s in terms of being cited and quoted, and attention that it's drawn. It's just people are they want another solution.
1: Yes, I hope I hope, I hope I hope things are changing somewhat, and people are more open to these ideas.
0: Can we make sure that we leave people? and I'm going to just for the listeners to, to relax because I know that they want to come, they want to hear more. Mark will be coming back, and we will be diving into these topics even deeper and send us your questions so that we can be more specific. But for now, I would love us to talk maybe a little bit about, you know, how do you do it? Do they cut up their pills? Do they do tapering strips? Do they do liquids? How do they do that? And if there's time, could we touch on esketamine? Because I know you've done work in that area, you've done research, and you have a a strong opinion. And if we don't fit it in now, we'll bring you back for that. There we go. Let me give you the floor so that you can... Give okay, us all right.
1: How to come off psychiatric medications. I'll, I'll talk about antidepressants, but really what I'm saying applies to all different drugs. I've given you the broad outline, which is to come off the drugs slowly over generally months and sometimes longer than that. And I'll explain a bit about how I work that out with patients. Then the key is to go down in small amounts. And what does small amounts mean? So there's one thing to understand about these drugs, which is that... Very small doses of these drugs, and that's when I say these drugs, I mean antidepressants, benzodiazepines, all psychiatric drugs have very large effects on the brain. So, if I can try to draw a graph with my fingers, people have in their mind that if you have dose of the drug on the bottom and the effect on the brain on the y axis, that there's like a a straight line that doubling the dose will double the effect. But actually, there's a hyperbola. Very small doses have very large effects and then it flattens out. So What that means is if you're on, say, 20 milligrams of a drug, about one milligram of that drug will have almost half the effect of 20 milligrams. Wow. So you go down by what I would call a linear amount, like a lot of guidelines suggest, going down from 20 to 15 to 10 to 5 to 0, it sounds like it's sensibly spread out. But actually in terms of effect on the brain, that first reduction will have a very small effect on the brain then the next reduction will have a bigger effect. And that final reduction from five to zero will have a huge effect on the brain because of that steep, that steep curve at the end. And so, and people, and that's what people's experience matches. I've I've had lots of patients say, I went from 20 to 10, it was fine, 10 to 5 was a little bit bumpier, but it was okay. We went from five to zero milligrams, you know, the wheels came off, I was a screaming mess, and I, and that very much matches this, the pharmacology of these drugs. And so what we what we published in 2019 in The Lancet was it makes more sense to reduce by even amounts of effect on the brain rather than even amounts of effect on, on dose. And what that means is you need to make smaller and smaller reductions as you get down to lower doses. So, for example, if one milligram has about half the effect of 20 milligrams, then you need to spend the same amount of time going from 20 milligrams to one milligram as going from one milligram to zero. So you sort of think one milligram mm-hmm. is your half point. and so if it takes you six months to go from twenty to one, then it should take six months to go from one to
0: zero. That's amazing, and, good yes, advice. So that's, very,
1: that's very counterintuitive. That yeah. people hear they think that doesn't sound that doesn't make sense, but if you look at the the chemistry of the way the drugs affect the brain, it does make sense. And what that in shorthand, what that means is to reduce the drugs by a proportion of the dose. So, for example, halving the drug repeatedly, so going from 20 to 10 to 5 to 2.5 to one and a quarter to 0.6 milligrams, that's sequential halvings, say six or seven times, will actually give you approximately even reductions of effect on the brain. And the reason why you have to go down to such a tiny dose, so 0.6 milligrams, which is something like 1 50th of the starting dose, is so that that final reduction in dose... Doesn't cause a bigger reduction in effect on the brain as those initial reductions. Not sure if that's clear. Yeah, no, that
0: makes sense. It's that whole graph. graph. Yeah, it is. Next time you can bring a graph.
1: (laughs) So that means one, you have to go down to these very low doses before stopping. So that final step down is not a huge jump, but just a small step. I've said I gave an example of 50% dose reductions, but some people find that too quick. And so you can make divisions. So you go down by 25% of your most recent dose, or 10% of your most recent dose, and or 5% of your most recent dose. And the phrase of your most recent dose is very important because it means that as the as your dose gets lower and lower, that proportion will become smaller and smaller. So. So 10% of 20 milligrams is two milligrams when you start, but 10% of one milligram is only 0.1 milligrams. So as you get down to lower doses, you need to make smaller and smaller reductions. And so that's often explained to people as being proportionate reductions, Mm -hmm. which is a a fancy term for meaning proportion of the most recent dose so it gets smaller and smaller. And what what was amazing to me was that, what I derived, so everything I've just said, I took from brain scans of people on antidepressants that show this hyperbola. So I, I worked it out completely theoretically. What made me spit out my soup is that's exactly the advice people had worked out online through trial and error. That's so that was extraordinary. It's sort of like you know when they realised that South America and Africa or whatever it is fit together the continents and that's you know, they've been continental drift. You know these things fit together. What I had seen in the neurobiology fit exactly what patients were doing. And they had worked out incredible. That's right. And they had worked out themselves to reduce by 10% of the most recent dose every month, exactly as the kind of the imaging of the brain suggests. And that was what that's what makes me so convinced that it's it's it works.
0: Peak tea has long been one of my favorite tea brands. I drink the Earl Grey tea every day and love how delicious it is and how easy it is to take with me when I'm traveling or on the go. Recently I also started using Peaks Liposomal Vitamin C as well, and it has made such a difference in my life. Natural collagen production starts to slow down in our 20s, and I'm 59 now, so this product has become an important part of my daily routine. Vitamin C is vital in the production of collagen and plays a key role in keeping our skin plump, supple and glowing as we age. Liposomal vitamin C is maximized for absorption to support healthy collagen levels for healthy skin and provide immune support, especially with cold and flu season upon us. Peaks liposomal vitamin C is full of antioxidants from organic elderberry superfood complex that can help smooth and brighten skin, combat hyperpigmentation and sunspots, sun damage from inside out. I love that it makes a great addition to my skincare routine, especially since I already use a topical vitamin C serum and that it only has seven clean ingredients. It's the beauty wellness shot that I look forward to take every day. Delicious and nutritious. Plus, it's non-GMO, non-soy, and has no refined sugars or preservatives. For a limited time, special offer, get 15% off and free shipping on your first month's supply of daily radiance by going to peaklife.com forward slash Leaf. That's peaklife.com dot com forward slash dr leaf the link and details will be in the show notes very quickly i didn't want to talk much just quickly how long should they take to do that would it be or is it up to the individual is it a month or six months or whatever is it just do they just judge it themselves
1: that's the 64 million dollar question how long does it mm-hmm. take people? to do it? i've sort of developed a new kind of risk calculator it depends on how long they've been on the drug for the longer you're on it the slower it needs to be depends on which drug. Some drugs cause much more withdrawal effects than other drugs. There are certain antidepressants that are worse than others, like geloxetine, venlafaxine, paroxetine. It matters. You know, the best kind of, probably the best thing is what's happened in the past. If they've gone off their drugs and they've become completely destabilised, huge amounts of withdrawal symptoms, mm-hmm. that's going to go slowly. If they've noticed when they've missed a weekend on holiday that' never it hasn't caused them any trouble. that's that to go a bit faster. So to put together all the different characteristics. Okay. having But what I do in practice is essentially do a test reduction, monitor withdrawal symptoms, and based on how severe they are, make the next choice.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, make a ten percent reduction, note your symptoms out of ten for a couple of weeks. You know if the symptoms are completely fine, you go the same rate or quicker. If they, you know, that was as much as you could tolerate. Make the same reduction. If it was too much, go slower. And so for every, it's it's a very individualized. You know, you're trying to balance two harms. You're trying to balance the harm of being on the drug too long unnecessarily, Mm -hmm. and the harm of coming off too quickly. And so you're trying to navigate between staying on and coming off too quickly. And most people find a rate that they can tolerate. That's very good.
0: Okay. And that guideline is on the Royal College of Psychiatry, the sort of That's guideline, cool. the papers, the attachment, and link. Okay, so now people are asking, in my mind, I know they're asking this, how do they do it? Is it liquid? Do they cut their tablets up?
1: Right. So, you know, this is this is where things get complicated on in, in practice. To start with, many people can just divide tablets. So when they're making reductions at high doses, mm-hmm. there are some tablets that will allow you to reduce. It's very easy to halve a tablet or to quarter a round tablet with a tablet cutter. You know, that's available for a, a pound or a dollar at pharmacies or online. It's got a little blade. You just click it down and it cuts the tablet in half or a quarter. People get past that and they need to be make more precise reductions. And at that point, there's, often, there's, there's, there's three or four options. Sometimes there are liquids available for a drug. So in different countries, manufacturers will make a liquid of, of your drug and you can use a small syringe or a dropper mechanism and measure out the volume that you need. Compounding pharmacies sometimes can make it up. They can be expensive, but sometimes they're not too expensive. There are, you can order smaller dose tablets from a compounding pharmacy. There's one famous one in Holland that supplies something called tapering strips. Mm -hmm. Basically small doses, you know, one milligram, 0.5 milligrams, 0.1 milligrams. Local pharmacies in different countries can sometimes do that. I think they're all over the place in America. Sometimes people who can't access any of those things are driven to quite to become kitchen pharmacologists, kind of Walter Whites of, of psychiatric drugs where they they open up capsules, they count out the beads inside, they count them out with a, a ruler on a black T-shirt and put them in other capsules in order to make small reductions. Amazing. You know, people are sort of driven to quite extreme reductions. Some people will grind the tablet down with a nail file and use a jeweler's scale to measure the weight in order to make That's small amazing. reductions. That's amazing. Yeah, people. I mean, people are are forced to be very inventive in Mm -hmm. order to make small reductions. It would be much better if people were able to be given access to liquid versions. They wouldn't need to be kitchen chemists. Other people will take many of the tablets are soluble in water, and they will either put in water, stir it around and make a, a solution that they can use a syringe to make up different doses. Or they'll grind up a tablet and dissolve it in water. So there are there are options. You know, every single drug will have some option that works for okay. it. It's good guidance online. We're writing a textbook at the moment that'll explain all the different options for all these different drugs. That's amazing. It will be helpful. But yes, in general, one of the main things for people is currently available tablets too large a dose in order to make those careful small reductions and people need to find alternatives exactly. Well, that's
0: incredible. You've given so many incredible alternatives. Mark, we're down to six minutes. Is there enough time? Do you want to say more about this or can you touch on esketamine? And the only reason I'm bringing it up now, even if we dive into it deeper, is because there's so in response to yours and Joanna's paper, I've seen so many psychiatrists actually saying, well, is a safe option and and even before your paper, this was out there. And you know, this is something people ask me about a lot, and, and I'd rather you give the answer than me.
1: So so ketamine is it's being marketed as bravado in America and countries around the world. And it's said to be a faster acting drug that acts on a different system to serotonin and it acts on the glutamatergic system. And we analyzed the data a couple of years ago. And, and, and what it shows is the following. just, just to, This is the safety and the efficacy. So the studies, they did three short-term studies that went for four weeks. Very short term. It's incredible that they were allowed to do such short term studies because they people for months or years. Two of the studies showed no difference between esketamine and a salt water spray. So people were spraying salt water in their in their in their nose, and between in two of those studies, there was no difference between esketamine and the salt water spray at four weeks. One of the studies showed a very small difference, a four point difference on a depression scale, which I think is about fifty points. Most commentators think that difference is too small to really matter. But actually, there's other reasons why that difference could exist. People are given a drug that causes dissociation. You know, ketamine is a, is a dissociative anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. It makes people feel differently. They know they're on the drug. We know that when people know they're on a drug, it will give them expectation effects. They're going to get better. Placebo. And that mm-hmm. can explain the difference, which is called the amplified placebo effect. Then we've got to step back and think about, actually, what is what is the drug doing? You know, Is it curing depression? You know what it's probably doing is making people feel a bit different you know we know that ketamine isn't dissociative anesthetic it's used in anesthetics it's used as a recreational drug you can see videos of people on youtube wandering around you know off their face on, on ketamine so what is it doing it's probably making people a bit euphoric a bit high a bit dissociated which which might distract them from their emotions for a little while But like for other recreational drugs, we know that that doesn't last. This is sort of like saying alcohol is good for anxiety. It probably is in the short term. But in the long term, a drug like alcohol that superimposes sedation or anxiolysis is not going to have that effect in the long term. We know that from seeing alcoholics. And the same thing is probably true for people on ketamine. People who use ketamine long term are not happy, relaxed, well people. You know, ketamine is neurotoxic. It has neurotoxic effects on the brain. It causes cognitive impairments. So it's likely not to keep these properties in the long term. So the, the the effects were very minor. There were some quite worrying safety issues in the study. We know that there's a thing called ketamine bladder, where people's bladder starts to stick together when you use ketamine too much. The the lining of the, of the bladder becomes sticky, and sometimes it happens that people can no longer pass urine and they need to get a catheter in, and they get very painful sensations. In the That's study. Terrible where they've used, and it's worth noting, they use they used doses that are a bit less than recreational doses, but not that much less. They're sort mm-hmm. of down the bottom of what people are using on the street. And there was lots of urinary problems in the, in the study. There were bladder problems, and some of the researchers said this looks a little bit like ketamine bladder, but it was only four weeks of a study, so it's very unclear what's going to happen in the long term. So there's that issue. There was also a number of suicides in the study, And interestingly, all the suicides happened in the group given the esketamine and none in the placebo arm. And people have pointed out, well, there was more patients in the esketamine arm, and that's true, than in the placebo arm. But it is still a bit alarming there were three suicides in the esketamine arm. Yeah. The the inclusion criteria for the study were you cannot be suicidal and you Mm -hmm. can't have had any suicide attempts in recent history. In other words, these people were selected for not being that severely depressed or, or suicidal. And so to see that three out of more than a thousand patients committed suicide, and only in that side, does raise alarm bells. That Those alarm bells were added to by a study done in America, since the drug has been released, after a year which found that reports to the fda about esketamine had an unusually large number of suicides and suicide attempts so there's Mm. two signals there in the study there was an alarming number of suicides in actual practice there seems to be more suicides happening than people would expect even in this population of people who are depressed yeah and try to make sense of it i read a lot about what does these what do these drugs do to people if you go to drugs.com People will write down what happens to them. And some people enjoy it. They say it was a great, you know, interesting trip. They like the K-hole, which is what recreational users talk about. There's a whole other group of people that have alarming, bizarre experiences. There's a there's a grown man who says he felt like he was on a Ferris wheel, like crying for his mother. We know these drugs are psychot- psychotomimetic, that is esketamine and ketamine, is used in studies to induce psychotic symptoms in people. And so it sounds like some of these people are becoming a bit loopy, a bit crazy mm-hmm. from the drugs. And maybe Very that's them, maybe that's what's causing them to be suicidal or to do things like that. That's one of the mechanisms proposed. There's a whole lot more to go into, but ketamine, we know, yeah. is an addictive drug. It causes dependence. It causes withdrawal. There's already stories coming out of clinics saying patients can't stop it. Withdrawal effects are too strong. People are asking for more and more of the drug. I, my biggest concern is that this may be a repeat of the opioid epidemic with people started on drugs that are addicted by their doctors, supposedly in safe environments, who yeah. need more and more of the drug and therefore move on to the street where you can easily buy ketamine. Exactly. it's uh, leads to all sorts of trouble. So I think, you know, we are... Janssen, the company that makes this drug, is essentially taking a recreational drug that gets people high, and is rebranding it as a as a medicine, and that's going to cause all the sorts of problems that that always causes. I think that's what's going on with esketamine.
0: Wow, you have said it in unbelievably brilliant way, and I thank you. And I'm just glad you said all those things because this has been my concern. And watching you know, the research you've done and everything, this is what I'm seeing as well. And there's just, it's frightening. So, we'll dive into it deeper, but you've given an incredibly good synopsis, and I didn't want to leave people hanging because people are asking about that so I'm pleased for that brilliant interview. I look forward to bringing you back again and taking these topics deeper so thank you mark for your for your vulnerability your honest your your openness and being so driven to to solve this problem and coming from the the very highly educated position that you are, your impact is going to be huge, so thank you for your help really fantastic that I can People that reach out to me now can say, go listen to this podcast, get those links. So we'll make sure we get the proper links up and thank you for your time.
1: Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, Carol.
0: I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself